everyone. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to note that there is mention of suicide in the episode. With that, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. One major function of public health is preparing for and responding to emergencies. Our guest today has played a major role in some severe mass casualty events, both in the United States and internationally. Peter Tehan is a funeral home director, author, mental health professional, and traumatologist. He is president of Tehan Funeral Home and founder of the International Mass Fatality Center. Peter is also an adjunct faculty member at the University of Iowa, a firefighter and emergency medical technician. He has years of professional, community, and volunteer experience ranging from community projects, lecturing, developing mental health crisis management, intervention programs, and lending his skills both of disaster operations protocols as well as extensive volunteerism in disaster services. I'm Garrett Naughton, co-hosting with Rusiko Mukamala. And if it's your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about the major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and outside the field. Peter, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So just getting started, you have such an interesting background. You, uh, you're a man that deals in grief and misery. So uh, how, how did you get into this field and what kind of directed you into this path? Well, the role of the funeral director, I grew up in it. I mean, my father started the business. We lived upstairs on the second and third floor of the funeral home. So being around death and dying and grief was just kind of a normal way of life. And, right. you know, as a kid, I never really realized how different it was from everybody else. I thought everybody had dead bodies in their houses <laughs> and things. I was the youngest of four. And uh, I actually, you know, through high school and, and when I thought about going, was thinking about college, went with the intent of becoming a, a lawyer. I had been involved in politics all the way from sixth grade and had worked at, at that point in Democratic office, ended up being part of a staff of a U.S. congressman uh, in, in high school and early years of college. Got to meet folks like Bobby Kennedy and Avril Harriman and all these big names in those days. But because it was a family business, my dad had died as, as when I was 12. The, we ended up left with my mom. I just kind of, that was been my only job since then. And ended up going to Co College and went on to Mortuary School and became a funeral director. And it's been really kind of an interesting journey in that sense because it was never thought when I graduated from college way back in 1974 that I would ever get into disaster work. I mean, that is about as foreign of an idea (laughs) as I ever had. And back then, they started requiring professions to have con ed. Mm. Well, in 19, uh, 1989, con ed was the big thing. And so they offered us all expenses paid two days to go to con ed in, in exciting Des Moines. And it must have been exciting <laughs> because I took bit the bolt. And it was a, there was a big earthquake, the New Madrid fault line uh-huh. that lies along Mississippi, and they were preparing. Uh, at that point, they were saying the risk was like 94% of it happening at any time. So they, we would be the first responders from Iowa since we're on the northern boundary. And so they gave us all this expense paid trip. I said, sure, I'll go and listen to you know, <laughs> lectures for two days and get, you know, get two days in Des Moines. And came away from that, you know, they taught us how we were going to, the the intensity of the disaster and what we'd have to do and, you know, how chaotic it would be. That was really the first exposure to disaster talk. And I did, I think, what everybody else in that class did is, you know, left there and rolled our eyes and said, (laughs) they ain't going to happen in Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) We got, you know, 16 hours of con ed, but this ain't going to go anywhere. They say they say you never prepare for something that that doesn't happen, but then it happens. It happens. And that's exactly what happened. That was April of 89. I came home, I threw my paperwork on the back <laughs> desk and said, you know, when I have absolutely nothing else to do, I'll, I'll go back and look at the paperwork. July 19, 1989. Yeah. I get a call about 4.30 in the afternoon and said, you know, this is the state of Iowa. You took our training in Des Moines. We just had United Flight 232 crash in Sioux City. There's over 300 people on board. 
we need you to respond to Susita immediately. And I looked at the papers yeah. on my desk. <laughs> I said, read oh, I wish I had read, read it a little bit better. So I immediately took off a few, you know, a few hours, had to pack stuff up. I think I got up to Sioux City at 2.30 and became one of coordinator of operations for Marchway Affairs in Sioux City. And uh, that opened the door to a whole new thing, but still never really thought it would yeah. happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, at, at growing up in a funeral home, <laughs> you probably had a much different perspective on life, like you said. I mean, does it, is that kind of... Uh, is that refreshing, or do you think you are more, are you better off because of it, or do you have, do you like the, the way you think about life? Well, I think I think it was refreshing in a, in a sense of, and part, it still as we look at the the letdown of disasters. I'm out in this chaotic. I, I always say you can't think of any more extreme, you know, from the quiet, somber, grieving work in the funeral home to having buildings fall down on me, getting hit by 17 hurricanes. Uh, You know, I've been shot at, I've been held twice at gunpoint by terrorists. You know, and so you go from, that's about as extreme as you can get, right? Yeah, right. And uh, so you you get all pumped up when you respond with adrenaline rush and then you come back to the quietness. So it's (laughs) kind of like a safe haven. Yeah, yeah. But in my role, it's, it's been kind of, it was the perfect tools, I think, that, gave me in the, as a foundation of working in a funeral home and dealing with grief and, and looking at the crisis of things to when I responded. Now, Sioux City was, I think, I think one of the, well, it truly was one of the victories from, for Iowa that came out of that is, you know, being a funeral director, we knew how important it was to take care of families mm-hmm. and to make them the most important thing, right? That wasn't necessarily true in the rest of the population. And, you know, we got to Sioux City, and the airlines in those days basically, I don't want to say captured, but brought, had control of the families. They housed the families at that point at Briarcliff College. The only people the families could talk to were airline employees. So they bring in flight agents, flight attendants, and ticket handlers, and admin people. And that's who they had to talk to. They were not allowed to talk to anybody else. And they were kind of holed up in the circle. And from our perspective, we weren't getting the information we needed to, to, uh, to identify the dead. We had uh, 112 fatalities. And so I kept calling United and said, we need to get up there and talk. And they said, you're not allowed up here. You know, this is all airlines employees. And as chances go, it was I was at the morgue operations like two, three o'clock in the morning. I get a call from a, a flight attendant who was with the family up there, and she says, "I have some questions. Anybody have a way to help me get the answers for these families?" And I said, "I feel sorry for the flight attendant afterwards, but I said, well, I could come up to the college and <laughs> answer the questions. Find your way in there. Find my way in." <laughs> And so it, it works in many ways in life. And so I went up there. I was there before four and sat with the family and flight attendant. And she was just so in, in amazed at how beneficial because she had none of the answers. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, she says, well, you really need to be up here to help the rest <laughs> of us. And I said, well, we've tried. They won't let us in. And so she said, well, let me go get my boss and see if we can't do anything about it. And lo and behold, 10 minutes later is the exact same person I argued with for the last three days. <laughs> of course it was, right? <laughs> and she said, what in the, are you doing yeah, here? Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, she said, well, we'll allow only you and one other funeral director to yeah, meet sure. with all 112 families, but right. you're not going to meet with them. You're going to sit in an office and if our staff has a question, they will walk to your office, get the answer, go back and give it to the families. And I, I thought to myself, well, that ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. But we're in the door, right? Yeah. And so it happened. And so they announced at 10 o'clock the families weren't to meet with us. But, but before we got back to the office, we had families lined out up the door. And what that proved, and why I, I stress this, is because that's part of the advocacy for families mm-hmm. was – 
you know, we fought for the families because we knew how important it was to take care of the families in a, in a death situation. I, I would assume most of the flight. It's like, it's like it was your job. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we set a precedent that led to a congressional act in about 1994, and it's the Aviation Family Assistance Act. And it dictated how families are going to, were going to be dealt with for the first time in history. But it started wow. in the work that we did in Iowa. And that's why, you know, I think yeah. it started because as a funeral director, I knew how important it was, and it hadn't been recognized before that. No, that's so true. Yeah. And to go off of that, I know you're talking about taking care of families, but when you're responding to these events, how do you take care of your own mental health and the people that you're working with? Do you have any techniques or anything? Well, it's, it's, it's you know, and I go back to 1989 just for a bit. We didn't know what mental health was sure, back then. Yeah, we, very you know, true. We, you know, you, it was like, going. you imagine you know, how are you taking care of these people? Well, we don't. They just either suck it up or they leave. Right. And that's, you know, so when we think of mental health, we think, well, this has been around a long time. In 1989, we had a psychiatrist from the airlines and they said, you know, we were talking about mental health impact. And he said, well, there's something I heard about this thing where they're doing, you know, helping people in crisis. But you know, it, that came later. But what we've learned, and that's how I became a mental health professional, is from those horrible experiences where we weren't taking care of ourselves, and I was what we now call traumatized or PTSD from even the early disasters, was that we have to get there and we've got we to respond, not only mm -hmm. at the time, but we need to prepare people ahead of time. And so... You know, I've, I've read, I've lectured, I've written, right? We do crisis intervention work and pre-incident education of the workers, but we're still vulnerable. Definitely. And, you know, that yeah. is, and I, th I think about the work at World Trade Center. All the airlines were shut down. I was floating out on a military jet on day two, got to ground zero before the last of seven buildings collapsed. But, you know, I'm there as a mental health professional looking around and thinking, okay, well, this is, I had a staff of some 60-some people reporting under my organizational structure. And people say, well, you're, you're going to be protected because you have all that knowledge. And I said, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you're yeah, as susceptible as everyone. Yeah. 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 And I remember when I lost it was, you know, we, we, had, we had multiple threats against our workplace because we were in the command staff area. We had Marines with machine guns outside, police officers and machine guns inside. We had death attack threats repeatedly throughout the day. Every place you went, they checked to make sure the car didn't have a bomb to it. And we don't have a lot of bomb threats in Iowa, and there <laughs> right. are people threatening. But I couldn't even yeah. get in my hotel until they checked for a bomb yeah. in the parking lot. An exciting life. Yeah. <laughs> and we were about three weeks in, three and a half weeks in. It was, uh, holy cow. And all of a sudden... We had a threat for the next day. We were notified there was a big threat. I had two friends coming from Washington, D.C., uh, who had worked the Pentagon operation. And I called them up and said, hey, I don't want you to come tomorrow because I think I'm going to die. Oh and I don't gosh. want you to die with me, so yeah, stay right. away. Yeah. He's a good friend. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But that's how the mental health, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. And so the one came, the other didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, both were fine. But it was... To me, that really hit home, Definitely. that know how prepared we are, how many college yeah. degrees or right. how much yeah. experience we have. And I'm thinking all my staff, you know, even though we talk to them to take notes, to take time off, to go for walks, watch your sleep, and make sure that uh, you're communicating with the family back home, we are as susceptible as someone who, you know, yeah. doesn't have that background. And Definitely. so that's where I became even more convinced how important it is. And so we do that. I'll tell my staffs now, I said, you know, what are you doing to take care of yourself? You're not working 20-hour days. You know, are you journaling? Are you reading? Are you listening to music? What, do, what takes you to relax? Yeah. And I, you, you check in constantly. Before, in, in, in the early years, they just send you home. Yeah. You know, you're, you're sitting there crying on a table and you can't control yourself. Mm -hmm. It's go home. And we did so much harm by doing that. And that's why suicide rates and all the other things were so high. You know, now we say, what can we do to help you through this? And how can we keep you on the job? And yeah. that makes a tremendous difference in the lives of people yeah. that they don't feel that they were failures. Yeah. 
and the, the education. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's the positive thing about it over the years is people are more willing to talk about it. At least give it yeah. lip service. Right. You know, and you'll get people who say, I don't need that. I'm used to it. And I said, well, I knew about it. Yeah. I got yeah. PTSD from it. Right. You know. Right. I, yeah. You know. Not many people have to worry if they're going to die in their line of work. Right. There's, you know. a, there's a select few that take that responsibility. Yeah. And my role changed over the years from the early responses of United Flight 232. I was deputy medical examiner Oklahoma mm -hmm. City bombing and then had a major cemetery disaster. Those I responded to a funeral director. And then I was Operation Desert Storm, which mm -hmm. I think is a, another lesson I'll talk about here in a second, right. is... Um, those were as a funeral director. Now I've shifted away from that because I needed a mental health break. Right. I didn't want to do yeah. funeral home here and do funeral right. home here. So then I, then I changed roles and started off with government relations and family service, working with families, and then got up to over 20 years now as a national mm -hmm. spokesperson for the American Red Cross. But I'm on the front lines of all these disasters. And, you know, that's domestically I do it with the Red Cross. When I do internationally, then I'm brought in by other yeah. organizations. But, you know. Yeah, I was kind of going to switch it a little bit here because you've been talking about the uh, mental health part about mm -hmm. it for a little bit. But uh, switching over to the, like, ethical part of your work, uh, I mean, I looked up your article mm -hmm. on the ethical guidelines of mass trauma. I wanted to ask... What do you find in these situations, whether it be mass trauma, mass casualty, I feel like those go hand in hand, mm -hmm. but what's a constant that you observe and what do you find to be like most important to either address or to focus on? Like, What's your main focal point? What's always probably going to happen in these situations that you either want to avoid, you want to address, or is just something that you need to take care of? Yeah, I think it goes back to a philosophy I have oftentimes when I lecture. I'll mm -hmm. say, what are the two most important parts of a disaster? And, you know, depending on the crowd, you'll get different answers. If they're firefighters, say, well, what are trucks or, you know, this, we need our equipment. <laughs> Some people say a response plan. And I say, no, go back to what's the two most important parts. And they, you know, they, they get stumped. And a lot of times nobody gives my answer, which is the right answer, of course. I'm the, instructor, I'm, the, I'm the lecturer, right? But I said the two most important parts of any disaster is the victims and the family and the workers and the family. Definitely. Everything is below that. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer your question is what happens consistently on disasters, they don't get placed in that ranking. Uh. And that's where a lot of the issues happen. All of a sudden, you get political Politics involved, you get uh, a lot of community dysfunctionality gets involved. You get friction. People get so, well, we got to do this, we got to go that. And they're in such a big hurry of making these decisions that they think are right, but oftentimes don't put the respect on to the victims and the families. And, yeah. the, and, and that's where the consistency is. And in a way, it's still mental health, but it is going back to caring for the families because they're the ones that are going to have to mm -hmm. live with it. Because right. as responders, we're there for a short time. Sure. You know, if you've been, ever been in a disaster, you know, you get all these people flood into an area. But after a few weeks, they go home. Yeah. And right. it's you that live in that community. They're maybe part of the response team with public health that are going to every day after all these responders leave are going to have to run into your neighbors at church or at the grocery store at restaurants and they're going to stare at you and you've got to feel that you protected them mm -hmm. and that you know you kept them a priority and that you know they will look at you and and thank you for that if there's a lot of harm done or people feel betrayed by their leaders or their public health figures or whatever that'll be a shame that you'll have to deal with for a long time. Right. Politics really gets in the way, doesn't it? it politics gets in the way, and in a sense, politics is such a reality. Yeah, right. But, you know, I, I use this example again in class. In Oklahoma City, we were at the Family Assistance Center doing death notifications, and the governor came in, and he wanted to see all the workers and see the whole spot. Well, where we did notifications was up on the second floor mm -hmm. of the church building that we were in. And you had armed guards were at the stairways, elevators. You had to have the right credentials to get up there. He wanted to go up and see how it was done. And we said, sure, you can come up. The administrator of the facility said, you can go up. But you can't go up if a family's getting a death notification. Mm -hmm. You know, when they're there, you can't be there because of politics. Right. And he agreed. 
he went up with an escort. He was going around meeting. All of a sudden, his phone goes off, and the radio of the escort goes off. He goes to his phone. She goes to her radio and finds out a family's coming upstairs. Mm -hmm. And her job was control the governor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And turned to the governor and said, Governor, families need to come up. You need to leave. We need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And he put his hand up to her and said, just a moment, and pushed her away. And, you know, I say, what are you going to do? You're the public health figures there. You're representing the families. What are you going to do with this influential person Mm -hmm. who's kind of, it's his state, it's he's in charge, and you're the escort, and you got a family coming. And it's interesting. Sometimes families say, well, I'll just tell the family to wait. Mm. That's not keeping them number one. Right. And so this escort did went back to the governor and said, Governor, you must not have heard me. A family's coming and you need to leave. Mm. Now, that's twice. And twice he said, just a moment, I'll get back to you. I'm on the phone. And a lot of people would give up. Right. And so she didn't, and it's an example I think all of us need to learn because it goes back to the essence of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. She said, Governor, hang up the phone right now or I'm going to take it away from you. A family's (laughs) coming and you're leaving, right? Yeah. And I would hope each of you and everyone listening to this podcast would do the same thing, right? Right. And he looked at her, looked at his phone, looked at her one more time and went back to his phone. And mm. said, Mr. President, I will call you back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> is that a, that's a good party story. That's, that's, a, yeah. that's yeah. a true story. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. But that is a classic case of what goes wrong. Right. And what goes wrong is if she had held the family back, yeah. then the families weren't number one. Yeah. Once they are not no, number one, then it cascades into worse situations. And for the workers who are viewing, who's got their back at that point? You know, they're trying to do their job, and you keep the politics out. Yes. And so that's what happens is politics gets involved, old habits get involved, Mm -hmm. and people just can't keep focus on the victims and families, workers and families. Mm -hmm. And it's a big price that gets paid by both those groups when they're not. Yeah. I think that's definitely a philosophy that needs to be taken much more, mm-hmm. much more approached for sure. Yeah, I just wanted to add, I think like, so I'm in the Masters of Healthcare Administration program. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we talk about a lot is when we're learning about how to change procedures or anything, how does it affect the patients? How does it affect their families, caregivers? And I think it's really important to remember like, why we're in healthcare or public health is to help people. And mm-hmm. so keeping in perspective who's important and why are we all here? You know, mm-hmm. it's all about the why. So I really love the story you shared. And that was, <laughs> must be super yeah. popular story with yeah. the Mr. President. But to add on to Garrett's earlier question, I wanted to talk about what are some of the biggest ethical challenges that you face when working with mass trauma contacts? Big ethical challenges. I think is there's you're always getting pushed to hurry up, and you're always getting pushed by the concept, this is a big disaster, and we don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. Going back at World Trade Center, again, a lot of classic stuff came out of there. When we showed up on the scene, it was total chaos. You couldn't see a quarter of a block down the road ahead of you. There was filled with dust, debris, mm-hmm. concrete, smoke. It was horrible. But if you needed to go past a certain point, you needed a, a helmet, for one. Yeah, right. And there was no helmet. The only way you got a helmet was if someone came out and threw it on the ground, you picked it up, you wore it. Right. It took five weeks before we got respirators. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, I was been a lot of hours there in other locations that were polluted. You'd walk out of there hours later blowing your nose and pulling up all this concrete, Mm -hmm. you know. And so the ethical thing is, no matter how horrific the event is, how do you put your workforce into that environment day after day after day and and feel it's ethical? And we were constantly being told, you know, the the air quality is good. We're testing it. We're testing it. I think I just heard that coming out of Ohio from a train wreck oh, yeah, you know, right. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. You know, and you think back, I've got five friends who died right. who were working with me down there because of that exposure and what we sucked in and breathed in those early weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's why 
most of the responders, I am getting ready for my annual physical, they put us through all sorts of physical because mm-hmm. there's so much cancer occurring. Sure. And so many of our workforce is dying because there's more workers who have died in the aftermath than actually died in, on 9-11. Wow. And that's critical. That's yeah. the ethical yeah. part. Yeah. You know. An interesting perspective is I'm a young guy. Uh, yeah. I was born after 9-11. Yeah. So I think... I mean, I can't even imagine the kinds of changes that came even from whether the policies that you had to work with and I guess the uh, improvement of your field. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say that, but the uh, the notice for importance. Well, that. and hopefully we learn. And sometimes you show up in a disaster and you scratch your head and we really haven't learned. I mean, right. the ethical part of, you know, I think of a hurricane that was coming into Galveston a few mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And we were there evacuating Galveston, and, you know, the president, the governor, the FEMA director, everybody, mayor was saying the threat was so huge. Yeah. You know, they had a horrific hurricane that went through. It was the early 1900s. It killed hundreds, yeah. hundreds of people on that island. It says if you stay, a certain death will occur. So they, they were pushing people. They did a much better job than when we were in New Orleans with oh, Katrina coming. Yeah, yeah. I was there also for that. But as hard as they pushed, you know, they brought in buses and hauling out. And I was looking at the place where people were loading onto buses to get out. And I, I talked to the mayor staff. I said, where are the disabled? Where are the people with handicap mm-hmm. and stuff? Yeah. And they said, well, we don't have anything in our plan to evacuate them. You know, we're hoping they're friends or we hope they'll get out or their caseworker or someone will give them out because we don't have that in our plan. I said, yeah. how many people do you think have disabilities or a handicap or, yeah, or yeah. needing assistance? And uh-huh. she said, probably five to, I think a town of 50,000, I think right. on that island. They said probably five to 6,000 people. Yeah, right. I said, so five to 6,000 people are at risk of dying here today yeah. because nobody has a plan yeah. and to take them out. And it was it was shocking, you know that that years after 9/11 mm-hmm. yeah. and years after what we think we're learning, yeah. we kind of abandoned this class of people. And it was after the incident they do a, a review of good things, bad mm-hmm. things. And part of the ethical thing was, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do about the people with disabilities? Because right. they're often, very often, and they still continue to be some of the least paid attention to. No matter how much we talk about it, we saw that in New Orleans, we saw that there, we see it in every disaster. They had a checklist, and it was evacuation of pets, excellent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Care of pets, (laughs) excellent. Oh, yeah. You know, people with disabilities, needs improvement. (laughs) (laughs) Evacuation, needs improvement. Everything about the special needs needed improvements, but the, the pets... Perfect scores. They had given so much thought to that. And the ethical question is, you know, where's our focus? Right. Yeah. And I think it's super important to have people like you working in the field to advocate for these people Mm -hmm. and to make sure that changes are being made. Because when you're in the situation, you're probably so focused on the situation at hand. It's not until after you review it that you realize, oh, like, there's a lot of improvements to be Mm -hmm. made and having people with your expertise continuing to improve these standards and make things better for the community. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Right. And I think another question I want to ask you is, obviously, you can't predict an emergency, but what do you think is most important to prepare for? If you're making your disaster plan for the end-all, be-all, what is is it going to be consisting of and what do you think we should focus on the most? Yeah. I think you, you take a realistic look of where, where you're at. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in Iowa City, you know, people think, okay, we haven't been affected by a whole lot, but you had a massive tornado go yeah, right through it? campus and down, you know. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Derecho? Well, oh, that was before that. the derecho. This oh. was like 12 years ago. I, I don't remember the dates. I was here just an hour after it hit, but it took tops off of a lot of the what's the street that comes off of the Capitol going east. But it damaged a lot of those houses. Several churches were destroyed. You know, we didn't have any deaths, but we had injuries. Mm-hmm. That's a practical thing to think. Now, you know, you can worry about a nuclear bomb, but that's not, you know. So yeah. look at what's really logical or practical for you yeah. and prepare for that. Prepare for the fact that you're not going to have any outside help probably for 96 hours at a, mm-hmm. at a minimum. Yeah. In, in COVID, in the, the duration period, it was a lot longer than that yeah. because you couldn't get from anywhere to here. 
So what are you going to do to take care of yourself and your family? What do you need? What kind of food? What kind of medicine? Do you have an elderly parent or a grandma or grandpa that you have to take care of? You know, how are you going to communicate with them? Everybody says, well, I've got my cell phone. Those are one of the first things that go offline. Right. right. You know, because the cell towers come yeah. down, they, they get overloaded. Mm -hmm. You yeah. lose power because you have no electricity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why you sit down, even with a simple house fire. Mm -hmm. You sit down with whoever's in that house and you say, in case of a fire, you don't try to do this. You call 911. Well, you get everybody out of the house, yeah. and then you call 911. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, people think, well, I'm going to stick it out, or I'm going to put it out with a towel, or I'm yeah, going to throw yeah, water right. on it. There isn't anything in that house that's more important than you. Right. You know, but get them out of the house, right. figure out where you're going to meet, just the basic response. But, and then what do you do after that? Where are your documents? Where are your valuables, your paperwork? Mm -hmm. You know, what's really important to take with you and, and have that in your plan? In the floods of 08, that was massive oh, right. devastation yeah, yeah, yeah. in Cedar Rapids. We'd have families call up at the command center and say, you got to help us. Why? And they said, well, we had to evacuate our house and it's completely underwater. Mm -hmm. But our daughter died several years ago and her urn was sitting on the mantle of the fireplace and somebody's got to go get her. Yeah, right. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. And so you've got to prioritize what you need and get a plan. Mm -hmm. I remember a few years, several years ago now, probably again, 12 years or 14 years ago, major hurricanes swiped across Florida, you know, hurricane. Uh, Ian was this year, Evan back there, there was uh, Charlie and, and yeah, oh yeah, well, and you lived through them all. And this was like the seventh hurricane to hit Florida and hit the Naples area and the governor was online and people were yelling at him, well, you know, where's our gas? We don't have gas, we don't have water, we don't have food. He said the hurricane just happened yesterday. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but he says, we've had six other hurricanes this year. Yeah. Did you not learn that you need to prepare? Yeah. But as much as we lecture about yeah, preparation, right. people don't prepare. Yeah. You know, people won't evacuate. Yeah. I, you know, I've been involved in evacuations of millions of people out of their communities. And you always have the people, I'm not going, I'm going to have a party. It's not going to happen, we're going to stay around. Been here for 30 years. Yeah, never <laughs> hit my house yet. Well, and then afterwards you find those same people and say, I'll never do that again. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, well, we say, well, if you don't evacuate, you're on your own. And when it, we know it's going to be really bad, we have a permanent marker. Right. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Put your social security number on your leg and your arm because that's how we're going to identify you afterwards. Damn. And they just don't, they just wow. won't believe it. Wow. And I remember one where we were off from the coastal areas and we evacuated the Outer Banks and a woman was there with family and they were going to their neighborhood having a party. Well, in the middle of the hurricane, she called. She had just gone into labor. She was eight months pregnant. Oh, wow. You know, there was no way to drive off the outer barrier. Yeah. But now she wanted rescue teams or helicopters to come yeah. in and rescue her. And it, no, it's a hurricane. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're cop coming. So. And so think about what you really need and what's really, really important for you. Right. And mm -hmm. come get it. And it can be, when we talk about disaster losses, I say, what's a disaster loss? And for what you lose that's important to you will be different than you yeah. and different from each of them listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I had one guy that was so distraught and we asked him, what's, what are you so distraught about? And he says, I lost all my roses. Oh. Now there is massive destruction. There was houses destroyed, hundreds of thousands right. of people not out of their homes. But he was distraught about roses. Does that sound a little odd or a little silly? It's a simple guy. Yeah. Well, but think about it. Yeah. what's important to you may not be important yeah, yeah, to yeah, you yeah. or yeah. to him. And it was more simple than just, I lost my rose garden. Yeah. Yeah. His great-great-grandfather had grown a strain of roses. Oh. And that had been passed down from generation to generation yeah. to generation and had been entrusted to him to perpetuate it. I feel like and, you gotta like cage those up or something. You gotta yeah. put a top on it. <laughs> well, yeah, but it was a hurricane. Yeah, Everything yeah. was ah, destroyed. Point, yeah. He <laughs> couldn't move it. But it, you know, to him, that was so important because right. it, he felt that he betrayed uh -huh. every previous generation mm -hmm. before him 
and failed every generation following yeah. them. And that's part of what we tell people. Yeah. Don't judge someone about what they're upset about. Definitely. Because it's their loss, not your loss. Right. And it's also about like, you don't know what people are going through mm -hmm. or you don't know, like you said, like you mentioned, like the the roses, like there was so much family history with that. We, we might think, oh, it's just a flower, but to them it's much more. So just yeah. remembering meeting people where they're at and putting yourself in their shoes yeah. as well and providing empathy. I think that's super important in public health across yeah. the board. And, and public health really has ended up taking a role of mm -hmm. keeping the public health, the mental health, keeping it in focus. And I think and that's what I enjoy working so much with public health is, is you become one of the strongest advocates for people in disaster. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But that's why those listening probably have a, you know, a, a very interest in mm -hmm. public health and responding, but you become the voice of those who can't speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you have to make sure that you go in with the right mindset and get as much experience as you can so that, you know, if I've got 30 some years of experience yeah, of, right. of it, you know, and you're the next generation uh -huh. coming up for replacing us. We're trying our best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys did awesome in COVID. I mean, and all the politics that yeah, involved right. and all the uncertainty and all the naysayers and all the people who didn't know the answers. Somebody has to keep the beating drum going mm -hmm. consistent. And that's why I say, I ask people, what's the most basic need of people? And again, I'm a lecturer, I have the answers, right? <laughs> but, you know, and you can hear all this other stuff. I say the most basic need for people is the need to feel safe. Yeah, definitely. And that's the role of public health, mm -hmm. is helping people feel safe. Right. And they feel safe when it's a consistent message and something that it makes sense and something that they can achieve. You can't set a goal that's unachievable to them. Right. You know, you, so you got to work at it at their level, at their resources, and make it so they can feel safe and feel that somebody's watching their back. Definitely. Right. I know you're doing research with some faculty here at the College of Public Health. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about that? And I just want to hear about your project. Oh, yeah. This is... Uh, over the years when I've written you know, books or we've done research papers, I was always amazed how there's very little, very, very little information about you know, those who care for the dead and the care of the family who, of, yeah. of the dead. And so when COVID broke out, I thought this is the perfect storm for this study to come to fruition to figure out what we can capture because it's consistent across the whole country. And so I have friends who work for Department of Health and Human Services in D.C. and, and Lori Walkner and, and Remy Afifi now here. And so I think I called Lori first and I said, hey, you know, I think we've talked about it before. She and I have worked together for a lot of years. I said, I think we've talked about it before that the, now call them the last responders. You know, they've never been looked at or talked about. And mm -hmm. she said, yeah. And so I pitched this idea. I said, That's a great idea. I said, yeah. is that something public health college could back around? And she, she said, I think we can make that happen. We had to work on funding. So then I call my friends in at Department of Health and Human Services. And I say, you know, the last this group called Last Responders never been paid attention. And they said, Peter, you're wrong. <laughs> we have studied every group in society structure. There's information out there. I said, well, then you go find it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and they said, well, we'll go find it. I said, if you don't find it, then you're paying, paying <laughs> us to have a study done, right? Yeah. Sure, we are, but we'll find And they call back a couple of weeks later and says, my God, this group has never been studied before. <laughs> we can't believe yeah. how important they are. That they how have. much money you need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so Lori Walkner and stuff got involved and his colleagues got involved and we put together a plan and they, right. so they support it. And it's a study of the last responders. And the last responders is everyone from the, basically the time of death. So the morgue attendant, the hospital, the medical examiner, coroner, death investigator, funeral director, the cemetery people and the crematory people. All of the key components of caring and disposing of the dead and, and their families. And people were just getting, in the industry, were just getting excited. They said, we've always wondered, but no one's ever found the time. Yeah. Yeah. And they poo-pooed it. They said, well, nobody's going to respond. 
we're in the middle of COVID, yeah. you know, and they've never been asked this before, so they're unlikely to do it. So we went out with the college, and we found all these organizations that represents all these groups and got them on board. We put out a mass, we, we so we had to do a blind study. Right. So we sent it to the organizations, they sent them out to their members, and people said, my heavens. You know, I took, I took the test questionnaire from a perspective. It took me over an hour to do. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a long questionnaire yeah. in real you detail. I made it, and I was still hard, <laughs> you know. And they said, nobody's going to take this much time. Uh. And I always get pumped up when I've got an idea that, you know, everything's going to work, right? And I, they said, now be careful because, <laughs> you know, we can put all these, we can put thousands out and you're going to get very few back. You'll be lucky to get 100 questionnaires back. Mm-hmm. You know, quite honestly, if you got 100, you'd be lucky. And we had asked them to fill the questionnaire out. Then we asked them a volunteer that when COVID was over six months later, which we know now isn't yeah. true, yeah, right. but at that point, would they take the questionnaire again? And would you be willing to do an oral interview? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm thinking hundreds and everybody else is saying, no, you know, you'll be lucky to get a hundred responses. You'll get very few that want to do a second survey and we need 30 people to do an oral interview and we'll be lucky in most cases to get those kind of responses. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I kept my fingers crossed, right? <laughs> we had 700 surveys responded. Oh after they, you know, went through and sorted out with some that weren't complete, yeah. we ended up with a clean 500 and almost 550 completed surveys. Wow. And we had more, about half of them willing to do the second survey. And we had well over, I think almost, and, and if I'm not accurate, yeah. it was like almost 200 people that were willing to do the oh oral interview. Gosh. Everybody was, you know, they yeah. said, we can't believe this. This shows how big of a need is. Yeah, definitely. And so we great results in questionnaire, stunning findings on the on the, out of the original questionnaire. The oral interviews are just so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the college staff and researchers that are doing the interviews, and they were being so moved by it. We ended up bringing in mental health people to work with the interviewers because of the information that they were receiving was so moving to them and the response for the people telling their stories, you know, they were pent up of all their lifetime Uh, career that no one's ever asked them. Yeah, I think real quick, I just wanted to follow up. Uh, Do you think that this like lack of awareness for like the last responders comes from the cultural part of like America, like Americans, we don't really we don't like to think about death. Right. We like to push it off. We like, ah, it's just a later issue. Yeah. Um, do you think that's the reason we just don't really want to put those people who want to work with the dead bodies away? We want them to, you know, don't think about that. Don't think about that. Yeah. People who with the dead, not yet. But uh, I think um, they're obviously, they're very important. They, right. they, they deal with traumatic things on probably yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But I, I, I expand that because mm-hmm. you said people in America, it's really all around the world. Yeah. People yeah. don't want to talk about death or yeah, dying. Right. You know, and the uh, and I find that a lot of times when people ask me what I do, mm-hmm. and it, it's amazing that when you say I'm a funeral director, they squirm. They squirm. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to talk about it, and they they immediately put you in a corner over here that someone that is you know, and that's out of the Bible. They talk uh-huh. about a person caring for the dead is unclean, uh-huh. and that comes out of a Bible verse, and people just. They just get the willy-nilly, and they don't want to talk about it. And then I tell them, well, I'm on the faculty of the University of Iowa as adjunct. I do all this research. And then they don't know how to balance it out because they have this perception what a funeral director does or a coroner (laughs) does, and I don't fit that mode in many cases. And they're puzzled. But I'm always amazed at the the difference. We had, for instance, in oral interviews, people were hurt because they were volunteering in New York, which was one of the hardest-hit areas. People were coming up at you know, restaurants and stores, kind of like when World Trade Center, you know, first responders, free meals here. Mm. And they go in and they say, are you a first responder? And they'll, you know, we're last responders were from the, well, you don't get free meals right. in. And they were, they were doing things nobody else wanted Was to do. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of what a lot of we heard is that dismissive. We had a hard time getting PPE protection yeah, to wear. Absolutely. They said, what they do you need so it for? More. Yeah. They need, well, our, you know, <laughs> our workers, much. you know, if, if you lose us as a caretaker of the dead, yeah. 
spray. Then you're going to have it back up. And we saw that in New York and California, yeah. L.A. had to shut down their crematories because they were cremating so many and they were worried about air pollution. Yeah, right. But, you know, people never understood what the role is. And that's part of what we're identifying is mm-hmm. the, the public's vision of what those last responders are and hopefully trying to improve yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Before we wrap up, I'm going to let you let you loose on this flight that you're planning here. It's very interesting for sure. Oh, well, thanks. It's yes. called Flight to Empolio. We uh-huh. take off in about six weeks or seven weeks. It's the May 5th we depart. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. We started planning <laughs> yeah. back in 2019. Wow. And we've got been canceled two years now because of COVID last year because of an invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the big thing here is if you look in, in historical perspective, 4,000 people have climbed Mount Everest. Wow. 500 people have been in outer space. Mm-hmm. Only 700 pilots have achieved what we're setting out okay. to do, taking a single engine airplane All around right. the world. And in the world right now, there's only less than 270 pilots that have achieved this goal. Really looking to go to the history books here. Yeah, yeah. go in the history book. And so we're taking the single engine airplane flying now 25,000 miles around the world in like 33 countries to raise awareness and funds to help end polio. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called Flight to End Polio. 100% of the money that we raise goes to Rotary International, which is an international club, and that they are the leading agency since 1984 to eradicate polio in the world. Oh, wow. And they've got it down to like 99 point some percent of polio is gone. <laughs> but the only other virus in in history of mankind that's been smallpox, eliminated. Yeah. Smallpox, exactly. And so this would be the second. Yeah. And how, I feel like this would be more impressive because the thing with smallpox is there's no, it can't infect anything else. So right. it can't really change. Right. It only infects humans. But polio... It has, I think it has a different bacteria reservoir. Whatever yeah, crippling know. children, crippling, yeah, a, sure. you know, long-term yeah. crippling. And not only what we're, we got the uh, polio relapse into, mm. yeah. you know, where we, you know, people had, I had a woman crying at, at a restaurant, you know, thanking me for this because her husband had just died from polio relapse. He oh, had wow. it as a child, oh. never was affected, but as he got old, got into his lungs, got into his oh, services, and it's on the death certificate, he died from polio oh. relapse. Oh, powerful implication. We need to eradicate it. Yeah, definitely. Our goal is to raise a million dollars. A hundred percent of what we raise goes to Rotary. Uh, mm-hmm. My fellow pilot and I will be in the same plane. We're yes. paying our expenses completely. You don't see mm-hmm. too many fundraisers like that. And what's even more exciting is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh-huh. is giving two dollars for every one dollar. Uh-huh. So if oh. we raise a million, they're giving two million wow. for three million. That's great. Awesome. And uh, so you can go to com. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a GoFundMe that people yeah. go donate to. And you can go on our site. We have a map and stuff. Right. But it's going to be a 90-day journey. Yeah. And what I had heard is you're going to bring a camera. A camera. Yeah, and what's your plan in terms of documenting this this endeavor? We'll do blogs hopefully every day, put yeah. it online. We'll do video and then uh, Keep you not every day <laughs> yeah, doing right, video right, because right. I'm not that good at it. But uh, in some of the areas we're going to have a problem of yeah, uploading, sure. yeah. you know, yeah. uploading the and getting it down. Resources just like fuel. Yeah. You know, forty percent of our places we have to ship our fuel in by fifty-five oh, wow. gallon drums and then hand pump it in. Oh my so gosh. that's going to take me a while. I, you know, <laughs> my arm gets sore. I'm not going to be able to pump it so much. But it it is one of those exciting adventures that this truly could impact the so children. Oh, yeah. And and right now, as you know from public health, we're at the lowest vaccination rate in the world that we've yeah. been in years. Yeah, that's a whole other And the, <laughs> if they say we don't eliminate polio soon, yeah. in the next 10 years, 200,000 children can become yeah. infected with polio, and we need to stop it. Yeah, for sure. And we need to stop it starting right here. Yeah, right. Rosika, you want to ask the last question yes. here? So this is something that we ask all of our guests, but what is one thing that you thought you knew, but you were later wrong about and it can be about your past or it can just be about life lessons you've learned i thought you know i've you hear those questions and you think about it and, yeah. I, and you know i i think what you thought and later learned was wrong most of that came from our parents right you know it's <laughs> like if you cross your eyes they're going to stick that way yeah, right yeah, yeah. i remember as growing up as a teenager i think it was you know as a teenage boy you know they said you can't take a girl across the state line, and she can't have her shoes off. Now, I don't know what <laughs> shoes off going across state lines that's, are. But that's that was, what I, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was the old one, but, the, you know, the cross-sided one. And then as a pilot, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, I think perception of the public is planes 
if the engine stops, they fall out of the sky. That's not true. No, yeah, they're they, they become they glide, gliders. Yeah, you yeah. know, they gliders. Scary, but <laughs> yeah. And I, in 1993, I was flying the plane I had until just the past November. Mm-hmm. We were flying 9,500 feet over St. Louis. We had five people on board. My engine blew up. I had no engine, <laughs> wow. and we were now became a glider. And that's yeah. where I learned. Hey, yeah. they do glide, yeah. and we glided at 10 miles, put it down in an airport with no injuries and no damage. We had to replace the engine. So, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Obviously, a very interesting man, oh. a very, very diverse background you got, yeah. for sure. I mean, with helping the, the 9-11 incident, I mean, up until COVID as of recently, mm-hmm. like, you got a diverse background and makes for a very interesting lecturer and speaker <laughs> on a podcast. But I want to say thank you very much for your time and uh, your dedication and compassion over the course of your career. We've really appreciated you on the show. And I, I just... Uh, if you had any final remarks, would you? what would you want to say, I guess? For those who are going into public health, mm-hmm. embrace it, challenge it, don't get burned out by it, and, you know, and c- continue the belief that we talked about earlier. Keep your clients and your families as number one. As a responder, keep you and your family, you know, up in those one and two spot, because without keeping that focus, that ethical focus, right then you're really losing the reason you're being in public health. Exactly. Don't yeah. lose it. You're too important to a response. <laughs> well, this has been Garrett and Rasika from, from the Front Row. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Peter Tehan for joining us today. This episode was hosted and written by Garrett Nodden and Rasika Mukamala, and edited and produced by Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.